Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. I'm Claire O'Connor. I'm here with my co-host, David Gibney, and we're joined today by Stevie Nolan of Trademark Belfast. This is episode 24, and as always, we're going to go through the front pages of the Sunday papers, have a quick look at the stories for the weekend, and then touch on some of the bigger stories of the week. So, Dave, I'm going to go to you first. What papers have you been reading today? So, uh, thanks, Claire. The, um, the first one I looked at was the Weekend's Irish Times, um, as usual, and... Uh, I'll go through a couple of the stories on the front page and we might want to get into a bit more detail after we finish the, the, the front pages of this. But on the front page of that is Trump um, transferred to military hospital 24 hours after COVID-19 diagnosis, which we may have to review that or he may have to review that because it turns out he knew he had COVID long before the announcement of his diagnosis. Um, and in fact, there are suspicions that he had COVID before the debate against Biden and he was hoping that he could potentially pass it on to Biden. But um, that's the, the top story in the Irish Times. And then underneath that, and again, we're going to definitely get into this one, I presume, but uh, Seamus Wolf complained of mood of hysteria. Um, and this is in relation to the Golfgate story that we all saw there earlier on. Um, I think it was, was it September? Is that only a month ago? Uh, no, it must have been August. Um, but uh, so, yeah, there's um, a big piece on that, which I don't want to ruin the story later on, but because we, we're going to get into it. And then I looked at the Sunday Business Post as well, or the Business Post as it's called now. And the big story there is the government to extend wage subsidy scheme and the help to buy scheme. Um, we might again talk about both of those uh, separately later on. Um, RTE in an existential crisis over funding. Um, it turns out RTE have written to the government seeking some emergency support. And then Varadkar uh, <laughs> continued his long campaign against the insurance industry with insurers must respond to watchdog findings. The guy who um, was so condescending and patronizing to Pierce Doherty as he was highlighting what was going on in the, um, the insurance industry has now managed to turn the corner and is on the side of the people. Uh, a true people's warrior there, Mr. Varadkar. Um, I don't know if Stevie wants to talk through some of the other papers that he's looking at there. Yeah, the British papers I'm looking at, the Sunday Times, it's all about Trump and COVID and uh, the Rose Garden, where apparently half of the American establishment were infected with it. You couldn't have organized it better, could you, if you tried? Um, there's a bit of confusion and denial, of course, on the American right, um, who think it's all a hoax and think there's no pandemic at all. And now the, the leader of, of, their, of, the, of the free world is, is coming down with it. I love the fact that you're using him as a human guinea pig as well. They seem to be sticking all sorts of drugs into him to see if he'll survive it. Um, Remdesivir is one, and the antibody drugs, and um, I suppose we'll have to wait and see how he comes out of it at the other end. Uh, I think it's probably a massive boon to Biden's campaign at this stage, um, if he survives, that is. Um, I think Biden may have it in the bag after this. Uh, the, the Trump's entire campaign last time, and this time is really based on him getting out and about, isn't it, and talking to people. So um, we'll have to see how it impacts on the election. If he dies, it's going to be really interesting whether they have to suspend the election then and put it back till after Christmas or something. So um, who knows what's going to happen. Uh, 2020 just keeps bringing, bringing these stories to us, doesn't it? Uh, the other headlines I'll talk to later, they're kind of local ones from the newsletter and the Irish News. It's all about lockdown up here in the six counties. But I can come to those later. Brilliant. Um, I had a look at the Sunday Independent, which most of the front page take, is taken up with level four warning as, as cases rocket, how hospital admissions are growing by 4% daily and the infection rate is at its highest since April 26th. I know, I mean, I think the numbers of the North really frighten people there to yesterday, the day before with the 926, I think it was, um, which was almost double. And even, in, you know, we're seeing it down here. 
the numbers yesterday were hitting over 600. Now we had, we were told that the deaths were, there was 10 deaths as well, but then a couple of minutes later we heard that eight of those were actually pre-September. So, you know, I think some of the, some of the reporting around it and, and how we look at the statistics um, might not be as uh, representative of what's happening as um, we initially thought. But, so what else is on the Sunday Independent is, there's a story here that you might be interested in, budget cash boost for consumers. So the government is considering a revamp of the stay and spend scheme, which would give consumers money in their pockets instead of having to wait for a tax credit. I mean, the past two weeks we've talked about how that stay and spend basically encouraged people to move all over the country, particularly from Dublin, where we have had high numbers and potentially are spreading it all over the country. Uh, in, one thing I thought was funny, down the bottom of the front page is, you know, Brendan O'Connor has this... Um, this article, you know, this piece he does every week, like an opinion piece. It's this week. It's anatomy of a week in outrage, and it goes through on Monday to Friday. And the Monday is everybody's outraged at the students in Galway. We had politicians calling for the army to be brought onto the streets of Galway to stop teenagers, stop teenagers drinking at Spanish Pier. Then on Tuesday, it was, um, you know, they're all artists and hippies and bohemians down there, and it was a Galway problem only. Wednesday, the poor students, because obviously then the education story broke, and it was the the rage was back on the department and back on the the government. Then Thursday it was judges are looking out for themselves because obviously we had the denim report and you know Wolf getting away with it. Um and then Friday it was Trump and it, it just some the news cycle is, is moving so quickly. Michael Darcy isn't even mentioned in there, which was when when the Michael Darcy story broke it was absolutely huge. So yeah, that's that's the Sunday Independent. And I think maybe Dave we can move back to some of the stories you covered there. Which one jumped out to you the most? Well I suppose the um the Wolf one I think is really of interest. Uh to people just on, because we're talking about COVID still and all of the, the increases and all that. And I did see a tweet yesterday about about um, about COVID. Actually, I saw two two um, really interesting tweets. Let me just get this one out. Um, Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine, um, he tweeted, there are currently more confirmed cases of coronavirus in the White House than in New Zealand, Taiwan, and Vietnam combined. <laughs> so much winning. Hashtag so much winning. But um, I also saw a tweet, I can't remember who it was from, but saying, look, um, is it any wonder that the virus is spreading and people are traveling around the country and ignoring the rules when we can have attorney generals or judges and RTE presenters and all that do it and get away with it? So this, this story on the front page of the Irish Times about Seamus Wolf uh, and the Denham Report, um, he complained, Seamus Wolf did, uh, that he was not sure that fellow Supreme Court justices had not prejudged him over the Gothgate controversy it has emerged. <laughs> I think it's hilarious that he's saying that judges would prejudge. You know, these are the people that are supposed to be in the middle making sure that there are no arbitrary decisions being made about people and, and prejudging people. He says, unfortunately, I think even judges are not above prejudging, judge. And in this mood of hysteria, I can't be sure that even some of my colleagues have not prejudged me. Uh, in the transcript in the report, he said, I think it's more damaging to the Supreme Court if they allowed some sort of theoretical damage to the institution prevail over hounding a judge out of office for no valid reason. This show goes to show the mentality of the guy. I can't be wrong whatsoever. And there is actually an element of this. Oh, yeah, there was a bit that I'm sure you're going to pick up on as well, or everybody is. But he said that objectively, to be completely fake, overblown, the story. And in some ways, it's like a Ku Klux Klan meeting. Yeah. <laughs> it's just mental, some of the stuff that he's coming out with. But this is the delusion that some of these people live in. And when I looked at um, who represented him in the, in, in, when he was talking to his boss, 
Michael Collins SC, and this, I mean, it's not related to the denim thing, but um, Michael Collins has received over a quarter of a million euros in four years off the state in terms of his own representations uh, uh, for, for the state. But Michael Collins was one of the two um, senior barristers who represented Irish Water, uh, you know, the utility that's supposed to provide us with water, when they sought legal advice for some unknown reason about whether, whether water charges or, or uh, progressive general taxation charges would be allowed under EU law. And there were questions to answer there for Irish Water about why they were hiring these two of the most expensive barristers in the state to ask a political question, uh, a utility that's supposed to be just providing us water. But what I think in relation to this story about Michael Collins and Seamus Wolfe and everything is that this really is establishment Ireland circling and protecting their own. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that's one of the stories that stood out for me. I don't know if you have any observations yourself on it. Yeah, I mean, I think the Ku Klux Klan uh, comment was, was particularly bad because it just shows the the level of entitlement and disconnect that some of these people have from from the real world, um, and particularly to use such a horrific group that um, you know that that attacks one of those marginalised groups in the world, and yeah. We have somebody who's then in the in the second breath defending Derek Leary and talking about the poor politicians and talking about how you know this was a this was basically a witch hunt. Um, there was a, I seen a, on, in other reports I heard people talking about how Wolf was you know a lifelong Fine Gael activist and how like what bothered me was that this report never went into why he was at that dinner in the first place and the ethics around him actually you know engaging and socialising with politicians and that to me was always the bigger issue here. It was a it was a little look into the, the the golden circle and you know what we know goes on but we rarely actually get any input into um i do think that i'm just looking here that the journal did some great work on it as well i read some of the transcript and even hearing how denim had to push him for answers she really had to push him for you know to get answers to the questions they didn't go into it at all around why he was there in the first place but also he, he, she was asking him about, you know, did he not, did he not know the up the changes to the legislation that happened that day that the regulations have been increased and you know restricted even further? But the reality is, is that even if they hadn't been, the the restrictions that had already been in place for the previous four weeks were already broken by the event. So I don't, I just feel like there's a real willingness to try and brush this under the carpet. You know, the the elephant in the room isn't actually being addressed. You know, in in, in multiple ways. I don't know, Stevie. Do you have any thoughts on it? Uh, just that I'm not surprised. I mean, the level, as you said, the level of entitlement of politicians in particular is incredible. You have to, if you think about that woman over in Scotland, was it Margaret Ferrier, the Scottish National Party MP, who um, was feeling really unwell, got tested, got on a train, went to London, went into the Houses of Parliament, spoke for about 20 minutes in the Houses of Parliament, then got a positive test, got back on the fucking train and went back to Scotland. I mean, she didn't think there was anything wrong with that. Apparently, she was also in the gym in a couple of shops on the way as well. So um, I think she's been asked to resign. Or she's been asked to consider her position, I think is the phrase we use, isn't it? But um, just, I mean, how thick, it's either a deep level of thickness and stupidity or just incredible levels of entitlement where these people think the rules simply don't apply to them, you know? Um, but every time one of these people in the establishment does that, it kind of weakens the, the, the entire kind of community's kind of resolve to resist or to follow lockdown restrictions and to, you know, do the right thing. And, you know, we've seen what's happened in the North here now, double, the double of cases, I think, in two days. went from 500 to 1,000 in two days, so it's kind of scary like what's happening at the moment, you know. I suppose you have to wait and see how that transfers across into hospitalizations. And uh, we'll know in about two or three weeks, I suppose, how bad things are. Yeah, I mean, just, just on that, just to wrap up my own perspective on that stuff, is that we have to remember that Seamus Wolfe was the Attorney General. 
He was the guy at the start of this pandemic who drafted or helped draft the rules around, around how we respond to this. So when six people are told to be in a room and he turns up and there's 80 people in a room, he should know better than that. But of course, as, as you said, Stevie, there, he, you know, the rules don't apply to him. But the, the, this line that he used again, you know, I said, this, this is a quote from himself, this is the greatest load of rubbish ever now, I thought. Jesus, we're really scraping the barrel here during the silly season in August. I mean, this, this is outrageous from somebody who's supposed to have drafted the rules and supposed to be, you know, showing some leadership. And as you said, Claire, you know, in, in, in mixing with um, the likes of Donny Cassidy, who he says in this was never interviewed, which again, that raises some serious questions. The guy who organized that event, the Golf Society outing, was never interviewed. Nobody has investigated him to ask what actually happened. So this isn't the case of let's get to the bottom of what happened. This is a case of how can we cover up what happened. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting is that this hasn't been investigated from a criminal point of view, but yet the the rave or the party in the Oliver Bond flats was, you know, and it's where the where power decides to um, insert itself is really interesting. Again, no surprise to any of us. I do think. But back to what Stevie said, it's sometimes you're just like, right, well, these people are supposed to be making decisions in the interests of, you know, the country. And yet they don't seem to have any kind of basic cop on or basic judgment. It's really a question of judgment. I mean, Seamus Wolf, Wolf talked about how uh, he didn't know there was going to be a dinner. As if when he walked into that room, he couldn't make a decision on the mo I mean, if he can't make a decision, a snap decision walking into a room in the middle of a pandemic around legislation that he was involved in actually writing, how can we expect him to make, you know, life and death decisions on a on a jury, you know, as a, as a member of the Supreme Court? Uh, some of the most important, you know, judicial matters of the of the state. Uh, but actually, that links into that, because when you were talking, Dave, I thought about how Brian Hayes, we still don't know who the three guests Brian Hayes um, had with him and I think that's that's really important it's what we don't know because there's a reason those three names haven't been uh, released and I would be I would you know I bet my house on it that the reason for that is because it's somebody involved in the lobbying industry which brings us to one of the bigger stories again of the week last Monday which feels like it was about three weeks ago with the news cycle this week but it was Michael Darcy so on Monday Michael Darcy uh, Senator Michael Darcy um, Fine Gael Senator resigned his his Shannon C after um, speaking last week possibly about a motion that would uh, benefit his new employer. So, and his, his new employer is the Irish Association of Investment Managers, um, which is a, a representative body for the funds and investment industry here. And I mean, it's just, there's supposed to be a 12 month uh, cooling off period for members of the Oireachtas before they go into any kind of lobbying position. The gymnastics that this organization and Darcy himself made in their statements about how they weren't going to lobby, how they weren't going to actively lobby any of his ex-colleagues or, you know, around the issues that he had spoken on was just ridiculous. And it shows again, I mean, SIPO, by the looks of things, SIPO aren't even, aren't even investigating it and they're not going to investigate it until he actually does lobby. I mean, as if he's not going to use those contacts. If he's, he was in the Shannon last week talking about this bill, as if he's not going to go into a boardroom next week and share all that information. It's just it's just a farce at this stage. I know there was another story in the Sunday Times as well about a similar thing. Dave, do you want to jump in on that? Yeah, just on, on that, because there is an article in the Business Post about Darcy jumping ship, and the headline is really um, it, it, it illustrative of why why this happens, but it says, because they're worth it. And it's very simple. Like uh, the, the, the reason that these industry... Uh, industries are pursuing TDs, uh, you know, and representatives from from the Oireachtas is because they get shit done. They know 
um, who the powerful people are in the departments. They've inter interacted with them. Michael Darcy is the former junior finance minister, and now he's working with the, the people who are trying to avoid paying taxes in Ireland. Um, and the article's quite good. I mean, it, it, I won't go through it all, but because people can join the dots themselves uh, around a lot of this. But it says at the end, the very last sentence, the short-term negative publicity and headlines these appointments attract are probably a price worth paying if the end goal is to change policies that affect a multi-trillion euro industry. So that's why they're bringing him in. And even if there is a cooling off period and he abides by it, within a year, he can be in there in the departments lobbying um, I'm in with TDs lobbying for greater flexibility for these multi-trillion uh, euro industries. So it's it's infuriating. It's shocking, isn't it? Really, it's it's it's, if the, it's almost as if the state and finance capital are deeply embedded partners and don't represent the people of Ireland at all. I mean, just fucking shocked by this. But the one thing about this, though, is in Ireland you can always is that they're so brazen about it. There's no there's no attempt to cover this up. There's no attempt to pretend that that. You know this this isn't going on like and anywhere else there's a little there'll at least be a little bit of cover to kind of hide what's going on but in ireland no one gives a fuck but i know you can just move from government straight into industry um it's fascinating that revolving door has always been there you know yeah i, I think it's really interesting while well, he stood up the week before like days before announcing this he stood up and said in the Shannon, from my experience investors are significantly ahead of everyone else they're the people with private equity funds and who administer the monies that will be crucial if we were serious about sustainable finance I mean, he stood up and said that knowing that he had this job. I mean, the levels of it, right, like, of course they're going to go after him. Of course they're going to go after the people with the position, in the positions of power with the access to power and the knowledge of how the system works. Like, it's a no-brainer. You can't blame them. But, what, like, we as a state have to make sure that that's prevented and that we actually protect our democracy. I mean, if we have, first of all, this is also becoming such a, it's kind of like journalists leaving journalism for, journalists for valid reasons because it's, you know, the, um, the stability within it and the you know the pay is is problematic. But I mean, when you look at well-paid politicians, um, particularly ones who will move, could move into any sector, a sector after their roles because they're coming out of government. But now that this is becoming the norm, what you're going to have is you're going to have people who get involved in politics through careerism who are actually getting involved specifically to get these jobs at the end. So I mean that to me is even more of a worry because then you have to look at you have to question the the motives and the, the the means of how people operate while they're in the job irrespective of you know ideology is bad enough like when you disagree with someone on their ideology it's bad enough but when you're looking at people thinking they have their eye on the prize about where they're moving after this that's just a really dangerous and worrying place to be mm. well, my, my question is why they're going after irish politicians who are completely incompetent um because you know the, the, the only positive thing that they have to bring to the table for these uh, bankers federations or investment trusts or all the rest of it is that they're, they're access to people because if they weren't so incompetent I mean as Bernadette Nagaliski mentioned on the podcast a couple of weeks ago um, you know these incompetent governments they're killing us and I want to go to Stevie to ask this question about it because um, there's a couple of articles here about well, first of all, I'm going to go to you to ask you about the North um, and the cases in the North, which are nearly a thousand people on Friday there. And then again, I think it was 900 or 800 or so yesterday. But I mean, when we talk about incompetent governments, uh, and we mentioned it last week about how for the first time um, the Irish system was going to start trying to figure out where people are actually contracting COVID from. So they've no idea, up until seven months into a pandemic, no idea where people are getting the, the, the thing from. But on page two of the Weekend's Irish Times, Harry McGee has an article, visitors' compliance going unmonitored. 
passengers arriving from abroad into Ireland are not being monitored to ensure compliance with advice to restrict movement for 14 days, the Department of Health has said. And it goes on and says that the 14-day travel restriction has the status of an advisory and not mandatory, which we're probably one of the few countries in the world. So there's a reason New Zealand has no cases. It's because it's not arbitrary and it's not voluntary and it's not an advisory. It's actually a law. And speaking to a couple of friends in Australia over the weekend, like there's, uh, there's no way an Australian citizen can get into Australia without a pass at the moment, right? And they've got 6,000 passes um, at a particular time, and then they'll give another 6,000 out. So there's lots of, there's literally thousands, there's 26,000 people on that waiting list to get back into Australia who are really trying to deal with this issue properly, particularly Western Australia. But anyway, this stuff here is saying, you know, that there were 186,769 COVID-19 passenger locator forms submitted 186,000 passengers coming through the airport. A total of 34,000 contacts were made by phone to ask them, supposed to ask them about, you know, have you, have you maintained your 14-day quarantine uh, period and all the rest of it. But it says then that they didn't ask them that question. They just wanted to confirm their details. <laughs> so they spent 34,000 phone calls asking if this is the right number that I'm ringing. I just find th this is just mental stuff. And then it's on the same page, you know, the very same page up in the top left-hand corner, daily cases in North to surge to, surge to nearly 1,000. Um, and then you mentioned, Claire, at the start of this about the whole, you know, um, go, stay, stay at home, you know, rather than go overseas on your holidays and you get a tax refund and how people from Dublin are being encouraged to, to holiday, as Thomas Pringle said last week, um, in Donegal and all of a sudden... Donegal is the worst county in Ireland, moving potentially up to level four. Uh, Derry is the worst in all of the UK, Derry Strabane area. Um, and, you know, it's, it's made a couple of records over its years. It's the, the worst in, terms, in the UK in terms of unemployment as well. But now we're having um, the new... Strabane also gets regularly voted the worst place to live in the UK. I just want to throw that one in there for all my Strabanimal mates. <laughs> I don't think it is a shit at all, but everyone says it is. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, so, I mean, th these things are all connected. Not monitoring the, the visitors entering and then all of a sudden a spread across the country. So, Claire, you want in on that one? Just one point before Stevie speaks about the North. I don't think these politicians are incompetent, a lot of them. I, you know, I, I want to be really, like, this, you look at Leo Varadkar, Leo Varadkar isn't incompetent. He's a very intelligent man. He knows exactly what he's doing. I just don't believe his... Um, you know the people of the country are his. You know the best interests of the people of the country are what his, where his priorities lie. I think his priorities lie in the private market. They lie in private business and profit. And that's a very you need to make that distinction that this stuff isn't happening by accident. It's not happening because of incompetence. Now that's separate shit. We have very dysfunctional systems, and that's as a result of you know lack of funding, of lack of priority, of the state just not wanting to be responsible for these things. So I think there, there's just a distinction to be made there that listen. Some of them are incompetent, but on the whole, I think it's actually that what their intention are, where their focus lies, and you know where they're putting their time, you know, while they're in public office. And I just think that's important because um, some of them are a little bit too competent in what they're doing, in my opinion. Maybe. I'm sorry, yeah, about the north. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's not really a shock. I mean, I suppose I'm surprised the numbers aren't going up everywhere actually because we're all kind of going through these restrictions, which aren't really restrictions. I mean, I've been at work this week. The kids are at school. I went out for a meal. I went out for a pint. I mean, what are the restrictions? That you can't have granny in the house. That, that's basically it. You can't. I mean, you can't have friends around. But so basically, we have this situation where everyone's most people are still at work. People are going back to work. Kids are at school. People are moving about, 
Um, and yet the problem apparently is you having house parties or us. So I think there's a there's a desperate kind of game of propaganda by all parts of the state, whether it's here, down south or in Britain, to kind of keep the economy going and have no real restrictions in place. And then we're all kind of in shock and wonder that why, why, are, why are numbers going up? It's fairly obvious why numbers are going up. And then you have these lockdowns that aren't lockdowns. I mean, they use the word lockdown, but when you look at the restrictions, actually, people are still going to work. There's no new furlough scheme, for instance, happening. If there's a lockdown, it's also going to happen then. So um, the whole thing's just been mishandled. You expect it in Northern Ireland because it's a completely dysfunctional place. And in this place, you know, it's not, it's not kind of politically, socially, economically sustainable in the long term. So it's no surprise to anyone who lives here that they fucked up the COVID restrictions. But then when you see what they're doing in Britain, it's even worse. And part of that, and a lot of that is down to the privatised nature of the response in terms of the privatisation of Track and Trace. They call it the NHS Track and Trace app. It's actually a Serco Track and Trace app, which doesn't work. And everyone knows it doesn't work. There was a great documentary on last week about a woman who was one of the uh, she was employed by Serco to do track and trace, and she made one phone call in four months, and that was her job. One phone call in the four months. I mean, she was doing five hours a day, I think, on the, on the, you know on the phones trying to track and trace people. So the whole thing is falling apart. They're talking now a lot about kind of a circuit breaker, two week mini lockdown, possibly at Halloween. Of course, two weeks is the incubation period of COVID. So I mean, I don't know how that's going to work. Um, so um, I imagine we're looking at a bigger lockdown towards Christmas, but then that would require the furlough scheme to be extended, which is closing at the end of this month, um, which is the one which allows workers, of course, to stay at home and not spread this. So it's going to get worse. The, the one thing, as I said previously, we have to keep our eye on, I suppose, is how the rising cases tracks across the hospitalizations and deaths. That's really the big statistic to watch out for, um, because obviously a lot of these cases are younger people. And it's how they, you know, it's whether those young people take it home and give it to granny. And that's the real worry. And just to, to, to my last bit on this one, um, yeah, I agree with you, Claire. So some of um, our lads are incompetent, but some of them actually know exactly what they're doing and who they're representing. And I think that leads me to another article, related but not related, but Ryanair base closure threats still live after high court defeat. So uh, again, a few months ago, I mentioned that um, Ryanair was taking the Irish government to the high court for... Um, having these travel restrictions, as, as, as Ryanair were calling them, and saying that that was interfering in their business and causing losses and all the rest of it. They were looking for that. But anyway, Ryanair lost that case um, because it said that um, the travel restrictions are only advisory. They're not actually legislative. So there's no legal uh, mechanism to stop somebody from traveling in. And, you know, again, just on that, and we might come back to Stevie after this, but, you know, this is why people are arguing we should have had an all-island plan around this stuff. Because in the South, we have this deal where you can go to the hospitality sector in Galway or in, in Donegal or whatever and, and travel there and get a, a refund. So people literally being encouraged by the Irish state to mingle, to mix. And up north, you have the eat out to help out scheme where people Monday to Wednesday are given 50% off uh, all meals, all food that they want. To, so again... Here's money to mingle, and all of a sudden, Ireland's wondering why it's having a second wave. And by the way, that that eat out, that to help out to eat out. I mean, the restaurants here were fucking packed Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You couldn't get a seat in a restaurant last month, and I'm not kidding you. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention though about the restrictions here, there's two quick stories that come out of some British papers which are interesting. One is that um, cases amongst staff in London care homes and hospitals have begun to soar. They've rocketed um, by five in the last five or six days. So that's a real concern there because. Once COVID, as you know, gets back into hospitals and care homes, then you're in serious trouble. Um, and particularly, as we know, because we know that doctors and nurses and care workers suffer 
I mean, are, are dying at a much higher rate than any other workers because of their um, exposure to COVID. The other story that got leaked out from an email, it's in the Sunday Times, is that wealthy areas in Britain aren't getting locked down. Poor areas are getting locked down, even though wealthy areas have high numbers, higher numbers of COVID. Um, so there's a, I mean, they just, they, can't, they just can't help themselves, the Tories, like I know. So poorer areas up in the north of England are getting locked down, whereas places down in Cornwall and North London and Ricelip and even Rishi Sunak's own um, uh, parliamentary seat area isn't being locked down, even though it has a higher rate of COVID per 100,000 than, than Birmingham and Leicester and Wigan and all the places that have been locked down. Um, I think something that's really interesting that relates to that as well is uh, page four of the Cinder, Wayne O'Connor has, has a story around um, key health staff exempt from close contact rules. So they're calling them derogations. So basically, um, almost 70, well, at least, sorry, at least 70, they don't have the exact figures, but at least 70 healthcare workers that have been confirmed close contacts of, of positive COVID cases have been allowed to continue working. So this is against the guidelines, but this change was made last week. Now, the HSD have said that they're, you know, they're taking this on a case-by-case case basis and it's been used sparingly. But the nurses' representative groups are saying this is a real worry. This is a worry for the, the you know, the healthcare, the, the welfare of their staff. And it's just, but again, the reason that they're doing this is because of an underfunded health service. It's because they actually don't have the staff to keep the the, the health service running if they if everybody that was a close contact was to was to stay at home. But I mean, if there's one place you don't want to get an into, like you just said, Stevie, it's healthcare sentence. So, you know, increasing the risk in healthcare sentence, both to workers and to patients or, you know, people receiving care, just sounds crazy. And I think, I know one of the things that I know people have been really frustrated down here over the past couple of weeks is that when we had the really extreme lockdown right at the start, a lot of the communications around it were saying that, you know, we need the time. We need to we need time to increase capacity. We need time to build up our, you know, staffing numbers. We need time to build up ICU beds. And it's just a huge amount of that work hasn't been done. We had people, you know, came home from Australia, from uh, America, from Britain, from Canada. Nurses came home to work in the healthcare se sector and they were gave, given really shitty contracts. You know, and they came out at the time and were talk talked about it, and it wasn't worth it for some of them. And some of them came home and couldn't even get employed. So, all of that stuff around the start about you know come home and help come home and work for us come home and be part of the fight um and then again workers are screwed over and now we're in a situation where we don't have enough staff and healthcare workers are being asked to increase their own risk and then you know the increase the risk within the healthcare setting they're in i just think it's crazy and it's really frustrating and it just feels like nothing in our attitude has actually changed we're still prioritizing you know like you said that there's a reason that wealthier areas are being prioritized there's a reason that private some private businesses are being allowed to operate uh, while others are being shut down with no furloughs or no increased investment or anything like that and yeah it's just it's just really frustrating that it's more of the same i think we saw this as an opportunity maybe to to really drive some change and i don't know whether that's a failure of of the left or whether it's you know public perception and that you know the buy-in of the government that they've seen some of this as a positive i don't know but it, it's really frustrating again just on a, a similar story but well related stories not a similar story but um it's that front page article uh, on the business post government to extend wage subsidy scheme and help to buy right just i'll start with the wage subsidy scheme because the and it, i'm not actually necessarily want to talk about it too much but the um the thing is that the employers really went to the state and said to them, we need to extend that beyond April of next year. Right now, God knows where we're going to be in April, but they're saying you need to extend it. And basically the government are immediately saying, yeah, no problem. Look, we'll look at that. We're going to review that. There'll be something in the budget. We'll sort you out. And then I'm thinking to the, the Debenhams workers who were on the picket lines there for 177 days um you know, in hail rain and the weather, as you've seen it today, um, like the pissings, uh, 
And they've been saying, bring in the, the Duffy Cahill report, change the legislation to allow workers um, to claim their proper redundancy agreements rather than leaving them high and dry. And the government are still resisting and still have not began even a consultation process around this stuff uh, right up in, you know, as I said, hundred about 120 days after the formation of the government, right? So there's, there's those contrasting, how do you get stuff done in this state? You just have to be an employer and say to the state, will you do it? If you're a bunch of workers, you need to pick it. Um, you know, 1,000 workers picketing in the rain uh, for 177 days, nearly 180 days, more than half a year. Do you know what I mean? Like this, this is what's what's really frustrating for workers. I was on the picket lines there on Thursday, um, talking to some of the staff, and they just said, you know, they were ignorant. Um, probably not the word that they used actually, but they were ignorant of the political processes and who stood with workers and who stood against them up until now. But they, by God, did they know who is on their side and who isn't at this moment in time? So they've been out lobbying. They've been out. Um, trying to get people to sign a pledge, a Debenhams pledge, that legislation will be changed in the coming months. Um, but unfortunately, Fianna Fáil and the Green Party are the two that are refusing to sign the pledge at the moment. And we didn't expect Fine Gael to sign it anyway. But the Green Party themselves, number of TDs in Limerick, in Waterford, have all said, no, not signing that. And it's a very simple pledge. It's the government, the implementation of the government's own recommendations, the government's own report, Duffy Cahill, from four years ago that they refused to implement. And the government TDs are saying, no, we're not bringing that in. So I don't know, maybe that's a good transition to talk about the uh, Green Party. Yeah, the Green Party are playing a fucking blinder at the moment, aren't they? I mean, they won't sign a simple pledge to protect workers who've been working for that organisation, some of them for three decades. Um, and then last night, I got a tweet from a mate, or a text from a mate, sorry, he says that, did you see what the Green Party are up to today? So I had a quick look online, and I, I thought it was a piss take at first. I thought it, I, I thought this can't be true, and it was a, I'll read that out to you. They had a conference yesterday, and there was a motion to insert a new principle of the Green Party, and it's one of their central principles, and it was, to insert into the constitution a just transition ensuring no workers or communities are left behind in the socio-economic transformation required to secure a safe and stable environment is vital in the struggle to advance social and climate justice. And you think that's reasonable, that's solid, that's absolute Green Party territory. And they voted it down. They didn't get, didn't get part of that. There's been some Weasley words, I think, since about, oh, the wording was bad and you have to get two-thirds majority, but... I mean, the Greens voting against a just transition is a bit like the Shinners voting against United Ireland. I mean, what the fuck is the point of that party if they're not going to support a just transition in the Green New Deal? I just don't, I generally am flummoxed by it. Um, I don't know the Greens in the South very well. I literally don't know anybody in the Green Party in the Republic of Ireland. But I know loads up here, in the, and it's the same party, obviously, although it's not really the same party. It's a bit like the Shinners, is two parties that pretended to be part of the same party, but... And they're all kind of left-wing up here and a bit progressive, and I'm sure they're all... I haven't contacted any of them this morning because I'm sure they're just crying in for their cornflakes this morning after that fiasco last night, but tell me, you two, you must yeah. know some of these people in, 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 in Green Party in the South. Who the fuck are they? What are they like? I mean, what do they look like? I mean, no, I mean, Stevie, you just said there, like, what is the point of the Green Party if they're not uh, just transition? I don't think anybody is really surprised down here. Over the past couple of years, the, the, our Green Party has attracted a lot more young left progressive members who a lot of them have left again because, you know, the, the history of the Green Party down here is going in and propping up Fianna Gael and actually going completely against what they said that their, their principles were. Um, they're also just, they have a, the optics of the Green Party down here is very middle class. So it's, we call them Fianna Gael on bikes. That's always been you know, kind of what the Green Party were known as in progressive circles because of their actions. And it's not, it's not a just transition. So it's, it's green principles at all costs. And as usual, the people who will be um, further marginalised are the people already on the mar margins and people who... So a lot of their policies are, you know, let's, let's 
penalise individuals rather than corporations. Let's, let's bring in an individual carbon tax instead of addressing data warehouses and the airline industry. So that that's pretty... Um, that's pretty much how the Green Party down here was gone. But just in terms of even since they've gone into government, I mean, you know, we have the the Just Transition Greens who have set up and kind of separated. And they have brilliant people like John Barry and Lorna Bogue who are just out there constantly calling out the kind of bullshit within the current Greens. But this week alone, the Greens, who, by the way, the government have a majority of something like 28. There's only, what, 11 in the Greens. They don't even need them at this stage um, to, to keep the government going. They voted against uh, an eviction ban, a three-year eviction ban from Mono Brin. Uh, it stopped Dems a motion to, to commit to ending child poverty. So it wasn't even anything. There was no, you know, nothing they really needed to commit to. They just needed to say, we're going to try to eradicate rather than say, we're going to try bring it down to half the numbers. Like, as a PR exercise alone, how they didn't just let that pass and not, they've failed every target anyway. Like every target they've mm. set for child poverty, they failed anyway. Why not just agree to it and fail, you know, as you have? I just don't even understand the optics of it. It's just a complete refusal to even pretend that they give a shit. Um, and then I, don't have, I don't have much faith in electoral politics, as you know, but um, I am going to look forward to watching the Green Party get fucking wiped out to the next election. That will be oh, the yeah. one good thing about the next yeah. election. And because they deserve it, frankly. They really yeah. do after that fiasco last night. They, end, they, they voted against the Labour bill on sick pay as well. I mean, in the middle of a pandemic, to vote down, that, and that was actually a substantial bill. That actually, know, that had implications, and it's just farcical. And I mean, I think that anybody, at the start, there was a couple of people, a couple of reps who were voting against the government. You know, they, um, you had uh, Joe O'Brien, who abstained from a vote, and you had um, Nessa Horgan, who voted against them once, and they both got reprimanded, and now they're back in line. If you're staying... And you're actually facilitating the harm that's being done for very little wins. I mean, there's not going to be, I, don't, I just don't think there's going to be any comeback from that. I have a, I have a hot take on this. Uh, and I could. Oh dear. <laughs> I really do. I was thinking like, why? And I was talking to Claire about this yesterday as well. I was like, why would the Greens vote this down? There is no logic to it because it doesn't really have any major implications, right? Maybe it's part of a purge of those left wing uh, greens. Maybe they're just trying to piss them off so much that they all flood out and we're left with the actual Fine Gaels on bicycles. We don't want those lefties in here anymore. They're embarrassing us. You look at some of the Twitter accounts of some of the lefties who are still in the greens, ripping the party apart, and maybe they're just pushing them right to the edge to try and get them to jump off that cliff so that they're left in a nice, happy party of right wing, um, neoliberal you know, uh, climate justice, so-called climate justice heads, right, who are prepared to, who understand that there are two, we, we have to tackle climate change. We do have to address um, the, the, the changes in the climate all across the, the world. Um, and somebody has to pay for that. And there's two ways you can do this. You can make those with wealth pay for it. The people who, who are causing the problems pay for it. Or you could sacrifice, and I don't use that word lightly, you could sacrifice the poorest in our society. And to, to me, the Irish Greens, down south anyway, are prepared to sacrifice the poorest in our society. These are the people who cut the minimum wage in 2010 by over 12%. You know, in the middle of a, a, an economic crisis where we already had one in 10 people suffering from food poverty, where we already had among the highest prevalence of low pay in the EU, where we already had deprivation levels at a record uh, high, they cut the minimum wage by 12 plus more than 12%. So maybe the party just wants to get back to having that nice, happy family of ripping apart the working class communities all across the country and not having anybody criticize them for it. Claire? 
Yeah, I actually think, I think they're in the space that Labour was in in 2011, that anybody could have told them they'd be in a month ago or two months ago. So they're doubling down. They're in that defensive mode that they they feel like, well, you know, we're doing what we can. We're the smallest part of government. We're going to try and influence the, you know, the smallest bit that we can, totally ignoring the harm they're facilitating. But then when they're criticised on anything, they're doubling down, they're getting defensive and they're, that's a really toxic place to be in, as we saw with Labour and how they actually ended up just veering further to the right and further to, how, you know, the, the kind of defence mode of facilitating being a gay ideological politics. But, um, and I think that showed as well in what we saw, I don't know if anybody saw the, the comments during that conference as well from Senator Roisin Garvey. So she was talking, which is a very valid point about, you know, the message should have been meet people where they're at. You know, where you, a lot of the language we use isn't penetrating to people and we need to meet people where they're at. And she learned this on the doors. But some of the language she used, she said basically that she from she learned this from her experience working with travellers. And obviously a lot of people online, there it, it was a real generalisation of what she said. And the message that came across was she said about rural people and travellers. And it was that, you know, you need to dumb yourself down when you're speaking to travellers or, or, you know, people from rural communities. And a lot of people came online to, to kind of point out how harmful that was, that the generalisations weren't helpful. She could have used different language. Um, and of course, the Greens came out in force as they have been constantly. It's this kind of constant, the minute there's any criticism, that's not what we said. And and some of these people are the, the kind of, you know, the social justice Greens who would normally be, you know, fight, they'd be shouting Black Lives Matter and defending, the, you know, the, the rights of travellers. But the minute there's a criticism towards them, they double down on, well, that's not what she meant and that's not what I heard and that wasn't the gist of it and the papers after twisting this. And regardless of how, you know, how a paper sensationalised it, they were direct quotes. And the, kind of the, the members of the travelling community that were online talking just weren't being listened to. So Roisin then came on and did this big long thread where about five or six tweets down, she said, you know, she worded it wrong and she apologised. But the thread started off with, you know, I'm really upset at how I, my words have been twisted. And she kind of centred herself and victimised herself. And then you had other senators like Lisa Chambers coming on and saying this wasn't how she meant it. And just this really highlighted how, again, I don't believe that it's possibly to be like socially progressive. See all this, we had it with Fianna Gael, a lot of women Fianna Gael politicians during the election talking about, you know, I support gay rights, I support, um, I'm a feminist, but you can't be, you know, you can't, you can't support trans rights if your, your politics disproportionately impacts the healthcare that trans people need to access or disproportionately, like the, in marginalised communities, the people that are most marginalised by economic policies are, you know, people of the LGBT community, um, are travellers, are working class people, are people who already have barriers up against them and, you know, when it comes to jobs and stuff like that. So I just felt like this was another example of how we have politicians who think they're progressive and who will stand up and say they support something. But when it comes to it, they'll dismiss those people in the, in, in the drop of a hat if it means protecting the people around them. And, you know, it seemed like a small thing, but it just, it really kind of, it really bugged me. Um, but that does link into another story of the week, actually. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago, and it was about the potential inclusion in the human rights um, protections around socioeconomic class. So Paul McKeown, an inner city man from, from Dublin inner city, has been fighting for this for years to have class basically recognised, um, socioeconomic status recognised in the the human rights discrimination laws. So, you know, as it's currently not. And he has some really, I've been involved in some stuff with him where we've done panels with people around accent, around your address, around how just being born into a working class family, you know, the intergenerational aspect of that, how that affects your your you know your opportunities and your, your kind of life outcomes and stuff like that so now again radical government is the green um 
minister responsible for it. He has talked about he's setting up a review and all the rest. How for you know how impactful that will be if it ever comes to it, I don't know. But it is a you know it is a positive. It is we're actually at least we're we're seeing the discussion had and we're seeing it you know potentially being inserted there. Yeah, I mean, just, I mean, it's semi-related to some of that stuff, but there's an article, a really good article um, by a, a friend of mine, um, Joe O'Connor from Forza. Um, it's not directly related to, uh, you know, class stuff at all, but it, the article is about a four-day week is not a luxury. It is an essential step forward. And at the end of it, you know, he's talking about how um, skepticism over the four-day week in many ways mirrors the historical arguments against the five-day week when many employers at the time maintained that our economy could not cope if we only worked five days a week and insisted that the weekend was an unaffordable luxury and how we're now, you know, and about fair play, it's about time the trade unions start talking about, you know, progressing again because we've stagnated for far too long and not had radical demands. But, you know, there's... Um, there's a couple of issues I would have with it and it's, it's not just denigrated or whatever, but obviously um, Joe who works for Forza, different sort of kettle of fish in terms of members. We represent retail and bar workers and, and mostly low paid workers. And their, our experiences with our members is that they want more hours at work. Um, and, and not because they want more hours, they want to go to work more often. Um, it's because they just can't afford to live in Ireland without working 48 hours a week. Um, we have over 100,000 workers in Ireland right now who say they want more hours at work but can't access them, the underemployed. And again, two years ago, we put forward um, 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 John, John Collins um, linking with the unions and, and Claire Daly as well at the time, put forward a motion uh, or not a motion, a bill, part of a bill, to allow workers access to extra hours of work where they needed them, um, rather than hiring new staff on lower wages. And it was shot down by um, the Fine Gael government at the time. But anyway, Joe is talking in this article here, since the launch of the Four Day Week Ireland campaign last year, we have been advocating for a new model of work, one which measures outputs and productivity as opposed to time spent in an office or at a desk. And I, th I think that's a really good idea where possible. And coming to you as a former postman where we'd come in and we'd have a route and you'd get your letters and you'd, once you deliver them you can go home so if I ran around on a Monday morning and got it done, my delivery done in three or four hours that's it I could go home uh, it, or I could walk around slower and spend the full eight nine hours there and I, I think you know there are merits to that sort of system where possible but unfortunately you know we have to live in the real world and I think a four-day week well it's achievable in some sectors for the vast majority of people they're in, in retail and, and in the private sector. Their employer is not going to give them um, a four-day week paying them for five days. They're going to have to get a 20 to 25% pay increase, really, um, in order to, to, to achieve that. But realistically, what we're looking for here is really universal basic services. We need cheaper housing, affordable housing. We need better transport services. We need to make people... Uh, able to afford a four-day week. That's where we really need to get into the discussions around some of this stuff. But I don't know if you guys want to talk a little bit about that or whether we want to move on. Um, I, wanted to throw, I wanted to throw in just before we finish, because I know we're coming to the end here, that um, the 4th of October is an important date to remember. I know you all know what the date is. Um, it's an anniversary of um, Cable Street, uh, the Battle of Cable Street in 1936, when, uh, well, I reckon 250,000 people turn up to um, stop the British Union of Fascists led by um, Oswald Mosley marching through Whitechapel in East London. Um, and it's an important, I suppose, to remember, particularly when we're having a, a significant rise of fascist and populist and authoritarian behaviour across the globe, whether it's here in Ireland, whether it's Britain, whether it's 
Hungary, Brazil, India, wherever you look, it seems to be on the rise, which is, and it's, and it's wound, of course, in the United States as well. Um, but it's also, I'm looking through the papers here, I don't see it, I can't see anything about it in the papers, unsurprisingly, um, to remember that important date about okay, which I'm throwing it in anyway, but um, sometimes when people talk about that particular incident, particularly the liberal press, they often kind of dress it up as, it, as if it was a kind of spontaneous reaction to badness led by the goodness of people in East London. And of course, it was months of organising in the background, particularly by the, um, there was one particular union, the National Union of Tailor and Garment Workers. It was a union that had a high Jewish membership. And they called a conference about three months before Cable Street when 86 organisations turned up. And it was three or four months of solid, deep organising in the streets of East London that, that, that brought that turnout of a quarter of a million people. I think that's something the left have to quite remember. People just don't turn up spontaneously to these things. It takes work and hard work at that. But also, there is a story about fascists in the papers and the Observer. Um, and it's about uh, a, a court case in Greece. There is the 68 people in the leadership of uh, Golden Dawn are being brought through the courts this week. And it looks as if they're going to be found guilty for a massive case of criminal organisation or conspiracy. Golden Dawn, as you know, was up at 10% in the polls about five years ago in Greece, and it was uh, expanding. And this particular criminal case has 68 people involved, in it, including senior, po- including policemen and members of the armed forces. And uh, it was one of those kind of fascist um, conspiracy cases that goes right to the heart of the state. We did a podcast on it last week with Duruan Furtel about um, fascism and Nazism on the rise within the German police force and the German military. So we all have to be on our guard. And I thought it was just useful to remind ourselves of what we can do when we're organised. And on that note, go listen to Stevie's podca- podcast. So it's Trademark Belfast, um, anywhere you get your podcasts. <laughs> um, so, and it just just as well, like because I've talked regularly about how I'm only, my political education is in its early days, you know, um, I've been listening to the, to the last podcast and it's, it's really, really brilliant. You can really start from any stage. Yeah, so I just want to cover one of the biggest stories of the week because we are coming to the end and it's education. And it has a, you know, Again, we, we talked about some of the stuff that happened in the doll, but I think the Leaving Cert students, again, been kind of screwed over. After, you know, the second round of offers went through, this, this code issue was found, and it turned out that pe- some people had their grades um, artificially increased. They haven't actually, they haven't been affected. And then people whose grades were kind of underestimated are, are going to be bumped up. I mean, the implications are huge for students who have already paid the price this year for the absolute mess the Department of Education has been. I, I really do think, and you know, it's not all—it's not as if this is all on one person. Um, we've had two ministers, but I do think that the Department of Education has has probably been the worst throughout government throughout this crisis because there hasn't been a time when they've been on top of it. You could argue. I mean, there's questions around the the company that they gave the, the project to, which seems to be just one person, the testing, um, I, like I used to be involved in project testing and, you know, in tech, um, tech projects and stuff like that. And I can't wrap my head around how you don't have, if you're running the project, you have some internal testing, you do user, user acceptance testing, you have to manage every kind of, or every potential scenario. Then it's client. So the Department of Education would have had to run those as well. It just doesn't make sense. And I know people like Donegal O'Leary and Gary Gannon and, you know, other education spokespeople have been standing up in the doll week in, week out, asking about this code, asking about, um, you know, asking for the actual code, asking for the testing uh, the protocol. Just these questions have been asked. And what's been happening is, is that the the government have been coming in, they've been dismissing, they've been constantly saying we have full confidence in this, you know, we're fully on top of it. It's all, and they've been ignoring the opposition. And now they're coming in to apologise and say, you know, what's gone wrong? We know that the government had this information for a week before they let anybody know. So students were 
finding accommodation. They, they were accepting places in college. They were finding accommodation. They were, they were uprooting their lives. And then they were taught the complete lack of regard for students and families and everybody. Like it's just, it's awful stuff. One thing that was kind of funny though during the week, um, if anybody watched the, it was a late night debate in the doll. Um, Gary Gannon was, you know, questioning Norma Foley on this stuff. And he went in to talk about, he said, you know, we're, we're constantly reacting to this stuff. It's constantly reactionary. He said, but in three weeks time, we're looking at potential strike action from secondary school teachers. He was like, and, I, and he went to talk about it and the Count Carla dived in, tried to stop him a couple of times. Gary was getting increasingly annoyed. Count Carla was saying, that's not what we're here to talk about. Um, and Gary made a comment about, Grant, when Humpty Dumpty falls off the wall, we'll, you know, we'll all come running. And it was, you know, it was a moment of light relief in the dog, but it, I actually think that's really important in how our government consistently operates. It's constantly reactionary. There's no forward planning. I mean, Again, there's a potential strike action in three weeks. The response to the Count Carla for that being raised was, well, we might be talking about it in three weeks and we'll come back to it then. You know, after it happening, there's no attempt to stop this stuff happening. You know, we're looking at in the middle of a pandemic, um, schools being closed across the country. And it's just, the answer was, we'll wait, we'll wait till it happens. Like, it's just mind blown. But I think it's, it's just these things exemplify the much bigger cracks right across our whole government system. Absolutely. Sorry, and one last thing on that that was really funny. The person who has been claiming that they broke this story all week, Alan Kelly, has been going on the radio talking. He went into the doll and he asked Michal Martin about it. And he was on the on the radio a couple of days later, you know, kind of taking credit for it. But Hugh O'Connell, you know, we had heard during the week that Hugh O'Connell had got the story earlier that day, had been ringing around sources, trying to confirm it, trying to get as much detail as possible. And obviously he rang Aon O'Reardon as one of the education people. So he obviously rang Aon. Um, and then Alan Kelly got the story, ran into the doll and broke it. But Hugh O'Connell wrote an opinion piece today in the in the Sunday Independent, you know, making it very clear what happened there. And I don't think Alan Kelly might be getting this platform in the sin, though, you know, as much as he has been going forward. Then... Yeah, I, I was trying during the week, I was in the car on the way into the office and I was thinking about going back to the time in my own head of doing my leaving cert and getting the results and the pressure that's on and all the rest of it and um, how the rest of your future, which is it, it's a mental fucking system anyway, but you're thinking that the rest of your future is dependent on whatever number comes out at the end of this and, and people obviously get distraught worrying about it and then find out you know during the week that 6,000 people are impacted by a you know, an algorithm error. Um, it's just, it, it's a flawed system in the first place. But Jesus, talk about putting more and more pressure on, on people. But before we, we finish up, um, I just have, to, I'm going to quickly go through two or three things here. Mairead McGuinness, is an article in, in the Irish Times, Mairead McGuinness will support fair taxation in Europe if she is approved as a commissioner. She's looking for the financial services portfolio as the commissioner, um, which, you know, she's, she's trying to win over the rest of Europe, which is hilarious because... This, they see Ireland as, you know, a, a laggard when it comes to the financial services. We're one of the only countries in Europe, along with the UK, who blocked the financial transaction tax back in 2015-16, which would have, by the way, brought in 700 million euros into the Irish exchequer. But no, we didn't want that. We wanted to make sure that we didn't get that money. Um, so she's now having to try and, it's funny watching Fine Gael TDs try and win over social democratic countries all around Europe and saying, how oh, I'll support fair taxation over there. I've never supported it over here, but she's referring to it as fair taxation here. So I think that's a funny one. And then you've got um, the virus crisis puts state nine billion in the red so this is going to be a very interesting budget in the next two weeks and we might do a 
a budget special um, in advance or after the budget to talk about you know what, what what potentially could happen to working class communities because I have no doubt that this current government is going to be hammering them to make them pay for the crisis as they did the last crisis. And finally, um, from my perspective anyway, and um, we might go to Stevie on this one again, uh, and Claire, you might have an opinion too, but this new uh, rule that anyone who's a member of a communist party anywhere in the world is forbidden from entering the United States. And it's interesting that we're talking about this on, on the anniversary of Cable Street. You know, and I was saying before we came on air, um, you know, this is part of the Red Scare stuff again. You know, this is, um, the whole Cable Street stuff was about no platforming fascists because they saw what allowing fascists to organize had done in Spain and Italy and Germany and they weren't allowing it to happen in London anymore and and when you think about this you know the, the banning communist members from entering the United States it's a it's a fear that there'll be a no platform for fascists in America which literally right now means shutting the president up so I don't know Stevie do you have any observations on well I don't know why you come to me about that Dave about banning communists from going to the States I mean uh I've no interest in going there at the moment, anyway. But <laughs> I wish, I wish, um, I wish the left was as big a threat as Trump and his supporters think it is. That's the reality here. Of course, it is as you said, a scare story. Reds under the bed, as usual. You know, um, it's part of the whole kind of uh, setup now of the right, isn't it, to create an enemy or create an enemy within, and the, the enemy within is themselves, not not the left. I suppose that's 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 the fucking sad thing about it. But it's part of that alt right or that new fascist or new authoritarian right kind of move because even in Britain last week, the government came out with new guidelines for the teaching of GCSEs. And in those guidelines, quite specifically, started off with a small story on Monday last week, but it kind of was in all of the press by Thursday. They're banning um, teachers from using any materials which refer to the overthrow of democracy and or capitalism. So those are now guidelines for teachers in England. Now, that doesn't sound, when you think about it, that's deeply fucking shocking. So you can't talk about any you can't talk about a just transition. You can't talk about a Green New Deal. You can't talk about moving to a, another system beyond the system that's killing our life support systems of our planet. So that's kind of, it's subtle and small, but it's actually quite important. There are, the teachers unions are having a, I mean, they're talking a lot about it at the moment, about how you, how you resist that. You couldn't talk about Black Lives Matter. You can't talk about um, the suffragettes. You can't talk about the history of the labor movement now. Because all of those movements at some kind of stage of their progress call for the overthrow of that particular economic system. So um, it's, it's kind of, that slide into authoritarianism is is happening slowly, and it's a bit, I think, like you know that story about you know how to if you um throw a frog into boiling water or jump out, but if you put a frog into a cold water and slowly, slowly boil it, the poor thing will lie there and fucking die. That seems to be what we're going through at the moment in terms of this this increasing authoritarianism um, everywhere, actually. Oh, and uh, yeah, I'm fuck America. I've no interest in going. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, listen, this has been uh, has been a great discussion again. Um, this is episode 23 of the week of work. I want to thank Stevie Nolan, our, our, our guest, and I want to thank our co-host Claire O'Connor. Um, and look, we'll be uh, probably doing another couple of specials over the next couple of weeks, as I mentioned there about the budget and a couple of other big issues. But um, in the meantime, thanks for listening in. And just don't forget, subscribe and share the podcast. Um, we, we got a great reaction to the last few uh, that, w that we've done but if we want to have um, an alternative voice and an alternative media we need your participation and your input and your support and thanks to everybody who has already supported us uh, but thanks again and subscribe and don't forget to listen to Trademarks podcast as well as Claire mentioned earlier a great political education podcast uh, episode 23 of the week of work signing out thank you <laughs> <laughs>